Welcome to the Wellness and Wahala podcast. This is a podcast for wellness and Wahala warriors who are a winner, world changer, wise, and winsome. They are dedicated to tackling Wahala, which means issues and problems in Nigerian pidgin for the good of humanity. Our tribe of subject matter experts in our village are a voice to the voiceless. Like you know, the African proverb, it says it takes a village. So we have a tribe of supporters that we will be interviewing on our show. Oya, join me, the former diplomat and public health advisor, Dr. Tomi Ademoku, better known as Omar Oba, as I give you the best public health and wellness in Wahala gist with wonderful people and guests, my VIPs, using their compassion to take action to put us on a pathway to a Wahala free life. Bless up. Tomi Uwahe Ademoku. I'm best known for the Wellness and Wahala podcast and also NIDO Radio, Nigerian and Diaspora Radio, South Savannah. And today I have my wonderful co host Daisy here. Over to you to introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. My name is Daisy and I'm a Georgia educator. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all of our great educators in the house. What um grade do you what grade do you teach? Middle school. Middle school. One of the hardest. That's Ooh, tell me about it. Middle school in Africa. That's secondary school. Yes, Abi. Yes. Okay. So it is great to have you today for Linkway Diplomats Hour as we launch today, and we have a very special guest, y'all. Yay. His name is Mr. Kunle Adeyanju. Most of you might know him Ooh. from the guy that rode his motorbike, y'all, from London to Lagos. You Ooh. hear me, yo? From London, United Kingdom to Lagos, Nigeria. Nigeria. And he did that in under, I think, 40-something days. So, you know, in under two months. So, exactly. So, in how many days? days? Four. 41. 41 41 days, y'all. So, you know, Jesus was in the wilderness for like 40 days. So, you know. Close. 40, 41 days is, is no easy. <laughs> so he rode through multiple countries um, and nations all the way from um, London to Lagos. So no better person to introduce him and his background but him. It is so great to have him here. Thank you for tuning in. Very late hours in Nigeria. So over to you, Sa, to give our guests just a brief bio summary you know we'll be here all day if we <laughs> if we read your full um, profile but over to you mr kunle all right uh, thank you for having me uh as uh, the host introduced me my name is kunle Adeju. um i'm a motivational speaker an author an adventurer and an entrepreneur um like you said i just did the london's lagos motorbike ride for charity uh to support NPOLU in africa and indeed world over, and also to raise funds, you know, for the for the initiative. Um, I mentor a lot of young graduates, you know, people in their mid-career days, people just leaving school, you know, how to better maximize their life potentials, to live a fulfilling life. Um, I've been in the corporate sector in Nigeria for the last uh, 25 years. I've worked for multinationals like British American Tobacco and uh, Shell Petroleum Development Company, and that's Shell Petroleum you have there, Shell Oil, which you have in America. So 
I spent the better part of my career working for Shell. That's in the upstream sector. And finally, I left Shell 219 to set up my own business, which is what I do now. Great, great, great. So um, I wanted to at least kick off um, our interview by asking you, you know, what really um, touched you to to go into the humanitarian sector and want to, you know, raise funds? I see that you're wearing a Rotary and Polio Now t-shirt. I'm also a Rotarian. Um, I actually did my, uh, my doctorate in, in public health dissertation on polio eradication in Nigeria. At that time, there was only four countries, as you know, that had polio, and I used to call them the pain countries because it caused me a lot of pain that every other country eradicated it <laughs> except, of course, our country. So P was for Pakistan, A for Afghanistan, I for India, and N for Nigeria, and Nigeria being the only African country. India has been able to, to end polio successfully, so it's only um, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Nigeria and of course, you know about the insecurities um, in the northeastern part of Nigeria. And my dissertation was more about the public health workers, extension workers being killed, going out to vaccinate children. As you know, as a student, we usually partner with, with churches, with schools, but we never really partner with the military of defense. And, you know, we have strong partnership with Rotary, with Rotary but it would be good, you know, to hear about, you know, your partnership with Rotary and about ending polio and just give us, um, uh, you know, a synopsis of why you said, okay, I'm going to take on this cause, you know, because we really consider you a linkway hero of peace, but this was not an easy task. Huh? So over to you. All right. Uh, thank you. So I'm a Rotarian, um, just like you, a Rotarian too, and I'm sure you know a little bit about Rotary. Well, I'm still going to talk more about that. Rotary has actually been at the forefront of the fight in eradicating polio in the world. You know, um, Rotary as an organization has uh, contributed $2.4 billion to date towards eradicating polio. And every year, Rotary International immunizes 500 million children across the world, all towards ending polio. Uh, the effort, the strong effort of everyone around the world the funding from Rotary International, also the support from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. You know, they have this funding partnership with Rotary, which we call the two-to-one matching grants, which means for every $1 Rotary International raises, or any member of Rotary raises into the Rotary International Conference, Bill and Melinda Gates matches it with $2. So that means $1 that you raise can become $3. And a vaccine is 50 cents. So technically speaking, if you raise one dollar, you can actually immunize six children. You know, so that's uh, that's been the funding partnership and how it has been. The good news is, with all this concerted efforts, uh, in 2019 Nigeria became polio free after not recording any polio cases in the last three years before then. So Nigeria was certified polio free, and when Nigeria got that certification. Africa became polio free. Now, so that's a good news for us. Yes. But the problem, the the bad news now. The bad news. The bad news we are having is we are having cases of polio resurgence in some part of Africa. Exactly. Exactly. Malawi, Malawi, like uh, four months ago, recorded a case of polio in Malawi. Yes, it was not genetically traced to Malawi. 
but it was like those who were discovered to have been imported. You know, just like COVID, this virus goes everywhere as long as people move. Uh, sadly, also, uh, the nation of uh, Cote d'Ivoire had their National Immunization Day on the 16th of June, between 16th and 19th of June. They declared a three days National Immunization Day for polio eradication, which they did. Um, as we speak, the nation of Togo is actually running through an immunization drive too because they discovered some cases there. And why do we have this resurgence? It is because when Africa became polio, certified polio free, we became complacent. Uh -huh. And we thought because we are polio free, the virus is no longer here. Yeah. But the fact is, the virus wasn't manifesting in the children because of the immunization work we've all done in the past. So when we got the certification and everybody relaxed, you know, so the new set of children coming into the world that were not being covered by the immunization started experiencing the virus again. So my going to do this adventure ride from London to Lagos to draw awareness, to wake everyone from our slumber, to tell us that the fact that we are fully certified free doesn't mean that we are free from the virus. We have been free because of the immunization that we've done. If we don't go back with that same hyper drive on the immunization, the problem will research. Exactly. And that was why I took on that challenge upon myself to create the awareness, to wake everybody up so we can go back to working the way we work to eradicate fully in Africa and also to raise funds you know, to support this initiative. Thank you, sir. So that is a, a great leeway to my next question about challenges. But I also wanted to interject and, and also my co-hosts, please, you know, chime in. You know, you talked about the power of partnership, partnership, you know, with Rotary, with Bill Gates, you know, foundation. There's a partnership also with educators. A lot of people became complacent. I was very happy when we were certified um, polio-free. But as you know, with public health and with vaccine-preventable pre diseases, we need to continue you know, to, to do our immunization campaigns. And it really takes a lot of partnership. You know, the, I, tell, it's, it, I tell people, I said, the power of partnership, people coming together to really strengthen our public health system. We cannot do it without partnership, both in the public and private sector. So even like educators play a very big role in educating, you know, the guardians, the parents, the students about the importance of routine immunization that should continue to happen, whether, you know, we're certified polio free or not. There is so many vaccine preventable illnesses that people should not be dying of. And that's one of the reasons why I got into to public health, because my my mom's brother died of, of TB, tuberculosis, which is a preventable disease. So over to you, um, my co-host, Ms. Daisy, to chime in on some of these challenges and, and, and partnerships as our host talked about today. So um, in the American school system, it is required to you know, get some shots, the immunization, before you even enroll into the school system. But unfortunately, we don't have that in the Nigerian school system. So, But like you said, educators have the... Um, you know, the power, they have the opportunity to educate parents and say, even if the school doesn't require it, it's important because this thing is creeping back in. Like you all said, we, we were celebrating, we're polio free. But now it's coming back, it's been imported. Mm -hmm. I think that was the word you used. Yes. It's been imported. So it's not genetic this time, but it's been imported just like COVID that was imported and was widespread. So before it becomes widespread, 
I would suggest that educators should inform parents, educate parents to get these vaccinations, to get these immunizations, so that, I mean, like you said, unnecessary deaths, a preventable death, so that we can prevent such, you know, diseases and deaths from happening. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for that. And that um, gets me to my next question, Sarah, is, you know, you you rode all the way from London to, to Lagos. That's very, very, <laughs> very courageous. Um, and I know that you probably felt, you you probably went through some challenges along the way, you know? Um, and of course, how did you stay persistent? You know, how were you assertive to say, okay, I'm not going to give up, you know? There's times where I'm sure, you know, you probably get hungry on the way, you probably get thirsty, you probably might even encounter some danger um, because nobody has did that type of, of, of plight. So you're really a trailblazer. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to be able to say, okay, you know, I'm going to fight for a cause and I'm going to do what everybody else want to do. But you said, look, I'm going to do something different. You know, I'm going to use my gift of, of, of being a bike rider. You know, you had a very comfortable career. You know, you said you worked in the shell, shell. section and, uh -huh. you know, in the upstream, you didn't really have to do this. You should have, you could have stayed back at home in your just comfort enjoy zone the money. and then just enjoy your retirement like everybody else. They'll be saying, uh-uh, Mr. Kunle, what's your apple? That you want to put yourself in danger. You know how people now, let's, let's be real. Wahala Otipoju, you they go from London to Lagos on the road. Why? You know, Shele, you want to kill yourself. You understand? You know how people so what really what really motivates you? Because you. you went through some challenges. So can you speak on some of that the challenges for those 41 days? That is not... Because for me, it's normal because I can't expect to cover 12,000 kilometers and not go through pain. Life doesn't work like that. You know, like um, the total distance from London to Lagos was about 12,000 kilos. Um, I did 3,100 kilometers from... London to Al Jazeera, that's the boundary of Europe, where I crossed the Mediterranean Sea via ferry into Tangier in Morocco. Then from Morocco down to Lagos, you know, going through Mauritania, Senegal, Mali, and stuff like that, I did about 9,000 kilometers. And um, the 3,100 kilometers in Europe also has its own challenges. You know, we might think probably because it's a uh, is in Europe and everything is easy, you know, but uh, I had to contend with freezing temperatures, you know, sub-zero temperatures. Oh. And you can imagine riding your bike in sub-zero temperatures. Yes. Number two, <laughs> there were actually very strong crosswinds that keep blowing you off the bike. So it's a lot of work to study the bike while really right. Then also the, the other most important, I mean, very challenging danger was the issue of black ice. You know, because of the sub-zero temperature, oh. ice forms on the road. Yes. And um, very it becomes very that. slippery. Uh -huh. You make you make a, a simple mistake, you go down. Yes. So that was that challenge in Europe. Going into Africa, it was a totally different challenge. It's much tougher than Europe. Because, you know, going through there, the heat there, if you are going through Sahara, you know, every, the Sahara is from yes. friends. It's an unfriendly place. It doesn't cooperate with you. It's not... Uh, it's not there to support life. You know, it's by your friend. And the margin for error on the Sahara is so steep. You know, because you make some silly mistake or you make a mistake on Sahara, it may be difficult to go back home. So because of all these challenges there on the Sahara, but at the same time, one beautiful thing I learned in Africa was 
9,000 kilometers in Africa was filled with so much more challenges than in Europe. But that was also the most beautiful experience I had on the ride. Uh, the 9,000 kilometers in Africa took me through, you know, the cities, the towns, the villages, you know, the lonely places, the isolated places where I was alone even for like almost half a whole day that I saw no one. But again, you know, when you get tested, when you get stretched, that's when the better part of you comes out. You know, those are what I experienced on the way. And I discovered, you know, during my ride, that Africa is indeed a beautiful country. It's a blessed continent. You know, I discovered the hospitality of the African people first time. And Africa is, is a land of diversity. You know, everywhere you go, there's something something exciting to learn, something to discover, something to learn. You know, you don't just that all these aha and wow moments. All the time I was on the African side, African continent, riding through. So for me, it's... Um, it was tough, yes, but it was also the most beautiful experience. Uh, particularly, the story of the African people, the discovery of the true African story. Because before embarking on this ride, right, I went. I did a lot of. It took me a year to plan the ride, actually, uh -huh. a whole year of devoting three hours of every day of that one year to build up my plan. And you know, I had to do a lot of reading about all the countries, all the available things I could get. I read about all the countries that were going past you. And everything I read pointed to the fact that almost all these places I was going to pass through are dangerous places. They are red zones. Oh. You know, places you don't, you should avoid and don't even go there. So it was, you know, the ride was filled with apprehension when I got into Africa because of all the dangers I read about all these routes. But I still went in. I made up my mind, I want to go there, I want to find it. Okay, if it's there, how do I need to get all the risks? Then I put in all those mitigation measures. Then I went in. But when I got there, I discovered a totally different story. It's not as bad as it was painted in the papers, in the media. It wasn't. Yeah, yeah. The people are nice. The people are friendly. This is where I read that they're going to kidnap you, they're going to kill you, they're going to <laughs> attack you. These are places where people come out to give me water, to give me mango. Oh, These yeah. are places where people come to, you know, like, can we take pictures with you? Can we do this? Those are the kind of reception I got from those people. So this actually opened my eyes to the real African story. And I realized that a lot of the media has actually made us to become afraid of each other. Exactly. Yeah. Before going there, I was filled with apprehension about these countries. Yeah. But when I got there and I discovered it totally differently, and I realized that the story I read about this wasn't true wasn't correct. So for me, when people ask me, what is my most important takeout from this adventure? And I say to everyone, loud and clear, the discovery of the true African story, the hospitality of the African people, the diversity of the continent, their warmth, their friendliness, and their generosity. I had, I had an issue in Mali. Um, I ran into a ditch because the visibility, the road was bad. There were a lot of potholes there. And um, a, a truck swerved into my lane, and I tried to avoid impacting the truck. I swerved onto the shoulder, the road shoulder, and I ran into a big ditch. And that wow. damaged the rear wheel of my bike. Yes. And that happened in a game reserve where there are lions, there are hyenas, there are cheetahs. Hey. And I became 
I became stranded. I became a sitting dog there, and it was in the night. So oh. that was for me the most troubling moment on that ride because Scary. you know. Like the animals, they have like light vision. They can see yes. you at they night. They can see you. You can't yeah, see but them. You but can't can see, see them. You. And by the yeah. time you see them, it's too late. Yeah. You know. So you know when that incident happened to me, it was that darkness, and you know the next thing, your survival instinct just kicks in. You don't even have time to think. The next thing was just to jump off the bike, and I said to myself, I need to find a way to put a height between me and any animal that may want to attack. And I started running, looking for a tree to climb. Finally, I got one and I jumped into the tree. I'm sure I've never climbed a tree that fast in my life. You know, I jumped, I climbed the tree, and I was at the top of the tree. Now, okay, yeah, I can think of what to do now. Then, as I was thinking of my next move, I saw a ray of light like 400 meters away. Then I said, okay, that's where I need to get to. Then I had to stay on the tree for like five minutes, just trying to, you know, Remain quiet, you know, even stealing yes. my breath so I can hear whether an animal has come around there. Coming there. Wow. You know, they are very stealthy in their behavior too. They come they're, very, they're very smart, yeah. Yeah, so I, after like five minutes, I didn't hear anything. I know, okay, it was safe. Then I jumped down and I ran here and everything with my helmet and everything. I ran into the village. When I got into the village, the, the pace I was running, you know, was so high. And I just bumped into them. And the next thing they did too, they started running. You know, <laughs> they like they don't know what's going. Yeah. What you running they away already like. from? <laughs> then I had to call them back to say sorry, please wait, wait. And they came back to me and they saw the way I was dressed. The woman said, "Oh, just take off your helmet for the way I was hunting." Instead of them, I don't speak them. They were speaking French. I don't speak French. Yep. I, I was about to ask them the language. language yes, yeah, I was about exactly. to ask that same question. And I don't speak <laughs> the local dialect, so. But exactly. when they saw the way I was dressed, the way I was hunting, even before asking me any question, the women in the village went to what they bought a chair for me. They said, sit down first. Before you see anything, Africa. sit down. Then I sat down. Africa, then they went, they brought water for me. They said, drink. Then I drank water. They brought another one in the boat. Can you wash your face? I washed my uh... face. They never even asked me anything that happened. Yes. Then so when I wanted to talk, the signal came down. So when my breathing came back to normal, they asked me what happened. Then they had a bike in the village, so I used the bike to explain what happened to them. You know, with sign language. Yes. And when I explained everything that happened, so the men there gathered themselves together. There were four of them. Then they carried cutlasses and with clubs and with sticks, and they said we should go. You know, they were pointing to me that we should go, and I was just wondering why are you carrying stick and cutlass and asking me to go. Because they uh, get the yeah. lion. <laughs> they came back to me in sign language and they said, like, what if like a lion comes to us? How do we do yes. that? Right. So just to tell you how oh, dangerous wow. where that thing happened to me, it was in a park. These people followed me to recover my bike. Oh, wow. Yes, from the way I got network connection. So I called my interpreter that I left at the border like 30 kilometers back to, to rent a car and come rescue me from the village. It took the interpreter like two and a half hours to get there. Because oh, wow. The incident happened about like 9 p.m. And the interpreter got there like about 1.30 a.m. in the morning. Okay. And the the most shocking thing for me, pleasant surprise for me was, for those three and a half hours, you know, the time when people are supposed to be sleeping, all the, women, all the women and the men in those villages, they didn't leave me alone. They stood with me. They 
comforted me. I didn't feel alone. They didn't make me feel alone. The women there asked me they were, that they were going to make food for me to eat while we were waiting for my interpreter. And I told because, you know, you couldn't, you can't eat. You know, the appetite wasn't there. I just went and, you know, like, with all the challenges that I was going through, food wasn't my problem then. I was hungry, <laughs> but, you know, food wasn't really in my the list of your problems. Yeah, so I told them, no, I couldn't eat. But these people genuinely, you know, helped me. People that I don't know. And these are people, they wrote about in the papers that if you run into a problem or you come across them, you are probably going to be killed. They are going to rob you. They are going to kill you. They are this, they are that. Mm -hmm. But these are the same people that showed me the most humanity. Yeah. yeah. I left the bag. My interpreter came about 1.30 a.m. I left them. Then I went to the city to spend the night. The following morning, we came with a truck to recover my bike. I tell you, everything I left on my bike was still there. there. They exactly. didn't see yes. anything. To me, that is humanity at its best. Yes. Yes. And these are people the media wanted me to be afraid of in the first place. So when I said to people that for me, the most high moments, the most important takeout for me on this trip, was the discovery of the true African story. And that's exactly what summarizes my experience. And this was the same thing I experienced in most of all these countries that I go to. I don't have flat tire everywhere, but like Burkina Faso wasn't part of my plan. I removed Burkina Faso because, you know, the danger painted around that country was too high. Well, I but when I was at home denied entry, into Cote d'Ivoire due to the black was blocking of Mali. I went into Burkina Faso. And the country that was actually the painted the most dangerous. Guess what I saw on the way? I'm gonna I will see hardworking farmers going to their field waving me as I ride back. I'll see hardworking, you know, women who sell their fruits by the roadside. They will flag me down. They'll say, please, can we take pictures together? Then when I'm about uh, people, they'll give me two mangoes from their stock to take mm -hmm. for free. That's the generosity I experienced from all these people along the way. Mr. Kunle, your story is very entertaining. <laughs> you faced a lot of life-threatening um, events. Now, as you were talking, when you talked about your experience, what you read online and when you actually went there in person, it, it didn't match. You know, that it, it, they made it look scary, dangerous. But when you got there, the people were friendly. The people were welcoming. As I was thinking about that, I was just thinking, Africans, we need to tell our own stories. Mm -hmm. We need to, because other people are telling our stories. And they are telling wrong stories. They are, they are not telling the truth. So we need, like, you know what I was thinking? Two suggestions for you, Mr. Kunle. You need to write a documentary, make a documentary about the things that you experience. Tell people that Africa, people are welcoming. People are hospitable. People are friendly. People are nice. It's not as dangerous as they paint, you know, all these African countries. So that was one. The second thing, when you talked about jumping on the tree, I was like, this sounds like a movie. We need to make a movie. <laughs> we need to make a movie about your cycling from UK to nigeria that sounds like a movie that needs to be made so think about that oh see <laughs> see she's in the spirit exactly okay, okay. cool let me talk over here okay 
yes. and took my bike. Yeah. Last, that was last uh, Friday, upper week Friday. And I just took my bike, took my passport, and I went to the border. I crossed the Nigerian border into Benin Republic. Then I crossed Benin Republic into Benin, and I just went to the beach house. I had no issue. Africa is yeah. lovely. I spent the week in Lomi. I went back again yesterday, and I got home. I had no problem, no issue. These are so, wonderful stories. I yeah, think I'm going to plan to go to Mali. Mali is... Mali caught my attention. <laughs> but I also wanted to jump in on that note. So because um, I tell people that traveling is learning. As an educator, um, I always tell people, you know, even my, my sister, you know, she has a, a travel agency, even though she's a public health professional, but on the side. And I always tell people that traveling is learning. <laughs> Excuse me, because you know nobody can tell you a story better than you. And yep, I think, yeah. and I think that that's why she said that you know firsthand story of you traveling. You know, yeah. this could be a, a yeah. award winning like Netflix, you yeah, know, documentary. documentary. Yep, yep, yep. Because many times <clears throat> when you talk about Africa, it's always in a negative side. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And I tell people that I've been blessed. Even in Nigeria, out of the thirty six states, I probably have traveled to about twenty of the states. In West Africa, you know, was in charge of Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast. I've been to Ghana. I've been to when you're talking about Ouagadougou, you know, Burkina Faso. I was stuck in Lome, Togo for a day. I've been to Dakar many times. And I'll tell people that, and they'll be shocked, you know. And I tell people the experiences that I got was so beautiful, just like you said. So, but it's so important to tell our story. I lost my pop seed seven years ago. And one of the things that you know, helps keep his memory alive. It's like when I go into like the video recordings or pictures or phone recordings, you know, having this type of interview is very important, this type of platform to tell your story. But I do really hope that you finish your book and you launch your book and we're able to also re-interview you when you launch your book, but That's also true. doing doing a documentary, you know? Yep, very um, important. <laughs> excuse me. I have bad allergies, so... I know people will be like, ah, this is pandemic season. So, but no, you know, you have, anybody can have allergies. Um, but really, I think that your story is just very empowering. And um, I call, you know, I use the terminology Afro-optimist um, because I've always been an Afro-optimist and I see you as an Afro-optimist, you know, an African that's very optimistic. Anytime, you know, people tell the African story is, is a very depressive type of story and it talks about the danger but people don't understand that there's danger everywhere there's danger in the uk there's danger in the u.s there's danger everywhere it's really god that you know protects us everywhere we go however you know when i look at all the places that i have traveled from dubai to uk to even living here in the u.s the best place where i have feel the most hospitable and safe is in africa so whether it's in East Africa, you know, in Kenya, Ethiopia, you know, that travel to in South Africa. And I think you touched on it, my co-host, about the language barriers. You know, I go into places, they speak French, they speak other languages. I have a translator. But there's a universal language of love, you know, mm -hmm. there's body language, you know. Yep, if if yep. somebody comes to you, you know, even before they talk, if they welcome you, you know what I'm saying? You don't even have to talk. But by their body language, you see how they ran to you. They're like, oh, sit down. They got a chair. Like, love is a universal language. So your story is very, very empowering. I'm happy that you said that you're in the process of finishing your book. I really pray that it will also launch into a documentary. And a movie. Because, and a movie, right. <laughs> and, 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 
and it will and you know we have great nollywood actors like these are mm-hmm. you know these these are things oh, yeah. that they will love to pick up because you're not only telling the nigerian story yes you're nigerian side but you're telling the african story you traveled mm-hmm. all the mm-hmm. way from the uk and you mm-hmm. said it you traveled through other places in, in europe but the best experience was traveling through africa you know I went to Niger State, you know, in Mina, and I saw the waterfalls. I never knew that we had beautiful waterfalls <laughs> in Nigeria. These are things that you don't you don't see in the books. You see what I'm saying? I saw it online, online, you know, or online. online yeah. So it'll be really great to not only see your book and, and the pictures and, and let your stories, you know, pictures make your stories come to life. Mm. But also, I, I, I really, really salute you, Sap on really being a hero a true hero um because this once again is not an easy task even traveling by car if you look at the statistic is very dangerous traveling by air is very dangerous and traveling by bike like you put the danger like three times <laughs> so it was extra 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 yep, dangerous yep, yep. That's um, true. Um, and you were able to really like you know god was was really with you so i really thank you um for that and then i wanted to go to my next question that says you know how have you been able to really um to really reach people with this your message you know of 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 your trip is one thing to to be able to accomplish this you know, but what what are the how are people receiving? How are people receiving? And what is your key like action, like call to action to people? You know, because I always say it's good, you know, to, for people to hear your story. But what would be your call to action to everybody, especially Africans, to to really be you know one inspiring, empowering, courageous, and really you know go above and beyond to tell their own story? Over to you, Zach. Okay, uh, thank you. Um, before I go to my call to action for people, let me just give you the reception of people of Africa. And generally people, even in Europe, all along the, the route for my, for my ride. Uh, what I notice is, you know, because I designed a flag prior to the ride, because I looked at it, I don't think, I'm going to use this ride to communicate a stronger message. And I said to myself, I'm not just going to fly the rotary flag, the end polio flag that I wanted to, the message I'm passing across. Because once people see that, people, you know, you get used to one image easily. And once you get used to it, you know, it doesn't really resonate with you much afterwards. But when you have multiple images, it makes your brain hold on to that object for much longer Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. I put in my country flag, the Nigerian flag first. I designed a three flag in one, the Nigerian flag at the top, because I'm able to do what I'm doing, because at first I'm a, I'm a Nigerian. I come in from the country. Yeah. So the Nigerian flag first, then the rotary and polio banner second, then imagine rotary third. You know, so having this three banner in one, and I flew this on my bike all through the ride. So it communicated so much message to people. The messages were strong. And whenever people see me, the first thing they want to ask me is, what is this all about? Yeah, I can see Nigeria, I can see polio, I can see Rotary. What links these three things together, these three issues together? And, you know, you open room for conversation. And so many people who flag me down, please can we take pictures with you? 
Yes, I expected people are going to flag me down. But the point is, I never expected it to flag me down that much because at some point on a daily basis, I get flagged down like 50 times. And I keep saying to myself, if that keep stopping at this race, it may be difficult to get to my destination, you know, on time. So, you know, I can rest, have enough rest to recover for the next day ride. You know, but it was a service I chose to take, so I can't complain. So what I do is whenever they flag me down, I try to, you know, like, you know, speed up the conversation a little bit, take the picture, then proceed. Yeah. So people love the message. And I realize that people love Nigeria along the line. They do. All along the way. People, oh, I love Nigeria. I love Nigeria. That's the messages I keep getting. Now, let me give you again how the level of impact of this message. When I got into Burkina Faso, I, I like to use Burkina Faso example because it's a country I didn't want to go to in the first place. I removed Burkina Faso from my roots because of how, you know, the, the danger they painted about the country in the papers. So it was a bit scary, you know, then I removed it, but I only went in there when I was at first denied entering to put the board. So I always, so when I got into Burkina Faso and they took me to uh, Bobadilaso, the Grand Mosque in Bobadilaso. Bobadilaso is the second biggest city in Burkina Faso, yes. the economic capital. So I went to Bobadilaso and I went to the Grand Mosque and I was introduced to the chief imam of the Grand Mosque. That's the oldest mosque in Burkina Faso. And when the chief imam, you know, to, okay, we spoke by an interpreter, and I told him my mission. And he just told me to hold on, that I shouldn't start, I shouldn't start the presentation first. Then he called all his subjects, and they went to call all their wives. And before you know it, we had a gathering of about 300 women seated there. And I had, you know, one of the most engaging moments of that right of that right in Burkina Faso. Because you know it wasn't a one way it wasn't a one way conversation. Yes. Yes, I did my presentation and the chief imam actually gave the women the liberty that please everybody ask your question. We need to stop for you in Africa. And I couldn't believe the kind of question I was getting from the women. They are so they may be literate, but they are very intelligent. You know, like very intelligent. some of them, they put me on my toes with the kind of question I was hearing from those people. <laughs> but I, I like this. So that's to tell you, okay, look at, you know, like contacting 300 women in one city. Look at the ripple effects. They are going to talk to their friends. Who are likely going to talk to their friends again? Some of them brought their children. Word of mouth. Who are like maybe five or ten. They're going to share this place with their friends too. So you can see how well that message is spreading. So, and this event like this happened twice when I was in Burkina Faso. So the extent and the reception of the message was so encouraging. I didn't even expect it was going to be this successful when I started it. But when I saw the magnitude of the stuff, I mean, the messages has taken, I mean, the communication has taken. It was, you know, like a very good thing for me. I felt happy about it. Now, if you're asking, what is the takeout I want people to do from this? What is the call to action? Uh -huh. We need to take the vaccine. That's it. We have to take the vaccine. That's the only way. Because we have the technology, we have the vaccine, we can end the virus. Uh -huh. And the vaccine is free. Because 
people like me that have gone to raise funds for the charity, for the NPOU course, and it's been supported with matching grant for Villa Melinda Gate Foundation. So it's, the vaccine is coming free to everyone. So what we need to do is, okay, the other five weeks for me, the most important part of this, my message was to break down the issue of vaccine hesitancy, you know, so that people can accept the vaccine. And you can imagine, that's why I was so excited with the Burkina Faso story. Imagine the 300 women talking to other women. Even if one woman talks to another woman, that's about 600 women. That's a huge number in the community. Yes. So you can see if we can remove the issue of vaccine hesitancy from about 600 women. It's like we've started the problem in almost all of Bobo Dinaso in Burkina Faso. So call to action is we are doing... The, the awareness campaign took a global dimension, which I didn't even say, but I'm happy it did that. So, yes, call to action. Let's keep spreading the message. We need to get people to take the, virus, take the vaccine. That is my call to action. Okay. Thank you so much, Mr. Kule. Um we need to hear more about how you're spreading this news and how people are receiving it and what they need to know. But I will have to take like a two-minute um, commercial break and we'll be back. Thanks for staying with us. To complement government's efforts at providing portable drinking water, a United States-based non-governmental organization has provided a borehole to address the water challenge being faced by the Zangie community in Nasarawa State. Agatha Joseph Obiora reports. Water, they said, is life. This is the river where the gay community assessed your drinking water. Residents of this community, located in Kariluku government area of Nasarawa State, are predominantly farmers and lack access to portable drinking water for decades before Linkway Africa came to their aid. Our passion is to meet the critical needs of the needy communities. Our vision is to provide water support, education support, and the health support and food support and is this community that is benefiting for the first time from uh, within the africa african region the community who could not hide their joy expressed gratitude to the donors and pledged to make proper use of the facility yes i'm happy with them the thing that we are doing for this village for the village of zange we are happy with them well, we have been suffering for water for so long which is, which is by some time we don't have water able to take our bath, no water to take bath. But for today, we are very happy for that. People with their sofa, what they drink, this river, whatever they put, this is everywhere. Linkway Africa Outreach Ministry is a faith-based non-governmental organization which was incorporated in 2010 to care for people and communities in need. From Kefi, Agatha Joseph Obioha, NTA News.
Hajos the building were highly equipped with a great infrastructure because our aim and our goal is to be a world-class uh, healthcare provider using cutting-edge technology. Being a part of Dida Hospital has inspired me to keep walking the line and remaining strong in my values. It's our joy to see baby being delivered, whether premature or time, because the mother, the joy that it after being discharged. This would not have been possible if our patient did not believe in our ability. We do virtually all kinds of clinical investigations and use all forms of diagnostic method. Quality healthcare is what we do. Quality service is what we deliver. And here, caring for our patients means we feel what they feel. Being rewarded with the content smiles of happy clients is my perfect DDoS story. Diplomat Show, and we have our special guest, Adekunle Adeyanju, um, the famous honorable guest that rode his bike from London to Lagos. So we've been having great gist. He's been telling us about his motivation um, on this project and, you know, his passion for polio eradication and the challenges that he faced mm -hmm. um, along the way riding, you know, in Europe and then throughout Africa, but also, you know, a lot of the great things that, you know, um, he never thought that he would experience. Reading, you know, about many of the African countries, especially he heard about all of the dangers, but really being on the road, it was a total opposite. When he was in danger, even it was a time his bike, you know, got messed up in a, in a place where they have, you know, a reserve of like lions, tigers, and bears, and you know the villagers came to rescue him. It was a it was a place where you know they speak French. It was a francophone African country, and even in Burkina Faso, mm -hmm. exactly Burkina Faso that he was trying to avoid. You know, God always likes to redirect your path. He was you know he wasn't able to go to Cote d'Ivoire, um, Ivory Coast, and he now diverted to Burkina Faso, and he had a wonderful experience. He was able to meet with hundreds of women there. And, you know, and, and, and polio eradication, as I said, I did my dissertation on, on polio eradication in Nigeria. Women are powerful. And what people don't know, it's not like regular vaccines, which are intravenous. Polio vaccine is not by needle. It's by drops in the mouth. It's like you taking Panadol, oh, as they I say in Africa, or Tylenol. It's actually any, you know, you can actually train those women, those caregivers. You know, we call them in Nigeria the Ministry of Health um, people, they don't have to be nurses. We have CHOOS, which are community health extension workers. You train them. But the thing is, these polio vaccines are cold chain. So that's another um, question that I want to talk to you about, about rolling out these vaccines in very rural areas. I've been to polio immunization campaigns and like Bill Gates, you know, they donate and the U.S. government, CDC, they donated like coolers. They have to delay freeze pack because these are cold chains. And so when I say cold chain vaccines, you have to keep them cold in a certain temperature. You know about our electricity problem. You know, so sometimes when we, 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 we travel to a village and we're at a primary health center, they don't have lights. So we have to buy petrol for the generator so they can keep the vaccines cold in the fridge all night. So, Sa, can you also talk about some of those, um, those specific challenges? Because the thing is, if, the, if, if it drops below that, and we've had problems with that, where they had light issue, those vaccines were not, not going to be able to be effective because they didn't have access to, to light. 
in my polio immunization campaigns, I'll tell you a story that, um, and I think it was really because I was Nigerian American that I was able to solve the problem. And I was very embarrassed. Nigeria is supposed to be known as the giant of Africa, you know. And that's why when you travel throughout all those African nations, they really, really respect Nigeria. We are, you know, not only the most populated black African nation in the world, we have so many, you know, Nobel Peace Prize laborers. We have so many engineers, you know, Nobel doctors, teachers, physicians, public and private sector, government officials, I mean, all over the world. However, I was quite disappointed because in the immunization campaign, that I, that I, you know, I won't mention the state in Nigeria where I was at, but <laughs> the government there, um, you know, I reported it to the Minister of Health, the Permanent Secretary, and they were extremely corrupt. So oh. the the Minister of Health and the and the and the um, and the Permanent Sec, as you said, it's Rotary Club has been on the forefront. U.S. government, Bill Gates, they donate all of this stuff. The only thing that we asked the Nigerian government to donate was the malaria bedness as an incentive. So when people come out and they bring their children to get vaccinated or they come to the schools, we can give the free bed nets to the, to, the, to, the, to the teachers. We can give the free bed nets to everybody that come out. So it's, it's like a two-pronged approach. So we're tackling, we're tackling malaria prevention and we're, tackling, and we're tackling polio. Unfortunately, for years, the malaria bed net always came up missing. So because, you know, so... Um, I don't speak Yoruba, but my boy Yoruba, dada, but me also, you know, Yoruba. So because I was born and raised here, my parents made sure that I understood Yoruba. So I was in this place. I was in the Yoruba states, and I was able to talk to my driver. That's why I said that you have to respect everybody. So I'm, so I'm bringing this full circle. Don't look down on anybody because, you know, they're illiterate or you go to the village or whatever. Everybody is important. And I was and I talk to people at that level. The same way I will respect the U.S. ambassador or the minister of health is the same way I'm going to respect my driver. So I now talk to the driver and I say, ah, I said, what's it happen? Why every year this malaria net always disappear? He said, ah, madame, you want me to tell you the truth? So he was, he now said, ah, do you understand your I said, my boy, your he now started saying that. The Minister of Health and the Permanent Secretary, they actually have their own private pharmacy. They take those uh. bed nets and they go and sell it. So I now said, okay. I said, can you tell me where that pharmacy is located? And then he now said that he also, they, they hide the bed nets in the storeroom in one of the primary health centers. So I was able to talk to the security men at the primary health center. They broke into that, that thing. And <laughs> when we opened the door... The bed nets were full from the from the from the bottom to the top. So I reported it to my oh guys in Abuja. Of course, you know, US government. <laughs> they're like, tell me, you don't want to get in trouble. And I said, Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. That's that's you know, that I know how to protect myself. So it was a very, very courageous thing because of course, you know, they can come after me, but you know, I wasn't I wasn't afraid because at the end of the day, I'm like these are malaria nests that's supposed to go to children to saving lives, uh-huh. and you're going to, you know, and you're going to still. And then I said, you didn't pay for any of the things: the vaccine, the coolers, the generators, the fridge. So there's a lot more challenges that that <laughs> is that are not talked about, like our infrastructure challenges. That should not be a case. We supply Ghana and other countries that have lights. It's a shame, sir. Even when I was in Burkina Faso, one of the poorest countries that I have actually visited in Africa, they had constant electricity. The light oh, never please. blinked for those two weeks that I was there, sir. So can you talk about those 
infrastructure challenges. You know, I know some people have vaccine hesitancy. They might say, okay, this vaccine is from Europe, the Oingo people. How do we know they're, you know, not trying to poison us? Or I've heard some things like, oh, you know, severe side effects and other things. And I tell those people, I said, look, I have taken the polio vaccine. You know, when you talk to somebody and you make it personal, say, look, I have took the polio vaccine. I have given my daughter the polio vaccine. I'm not going to tell you to take something that I personally, do you understand, cannot vouch for. So can you talk about, it's it just sad that, you know, it, it, I'm happy that Rotary and Bill Gates and everything, but it shouldn't say because Nigeria is a very rich country. You said that when you work for, for you know, the oil company, the oil sector, we have people like, you know, Aliku Dangote, the Mike Adenu guys, the billionaires of Africa that are in Nigeria. So why can't they fix those type of infrastructure? What is your call to action to them, sir? Over to you. I'm sorry for putting you on a spot, but I have to be One man against the country. Something about a little comment about the corruption aspect you talked about. Uh, thank yeah, you, thank yeah, you. Yeah. I have been opportunity to have visited over 75 countries around the world. Yes. Okay. 75. 75. That's even before this right. And I can tell you, corruption exists everywhere. Uh, the only thing is exists in different shapes and sizes. In the recent the time, during the COVID, I'm sure you heard about what happened in Brazil with the COVID vaccine. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. It's everywhere, yes. So it happens everywhere. Even in the United States where you are, I'm sure you remember Bernie Bernimado. You yes. remember Alan Stanford. So you many know, scandals, even now. <laughs> Bernimado, where it's late now, this was the guy that was chairman of the New York Stock Exchange. You know, so corruption happens everywhere. Right. So, yeah, maybe the one in, you saw with the net is the corruption, but maybe wicked. But I can tell you, those other ones too are wicked because if we talked about, I mean, we look at what happened in Afghanistan recently when the United States pulled out. And everybody will say, why will the U.S. government pull out exactly. of Afghanistan and leave $90 billion worth of equipment there? Military equipment, exactly. So it takes a lot of questions. Some people will tell you it's also corruption. So there are corruption everywhere. So I'm not going to talk about corruption because it happens everywhere. Okay? But let's look at those things you and I can fix where we can address. Now, the point is, as a Rotarian, what we do to ourselves is every member of the Rotary Club, we are 1.2 million people around the world. We all contribute $40 every year. Sorry, $100 every year to Polio Plus Foundation. So that's where the money comes in. So when we contribute that $100 every year to Polio Plus Foundation, part of it goes into providing uh, the funding for the vaccine. The other part goes into all those logistics arrangements. You see all those volunteers that we have? Yes. They get, they get paid stipend. I was in Cote d'Ivoire during this ride. And, okay, you know, I told the ride took me 41 days. Actually, it took 14 days actual riding. For 41 days, because World Health Organization came in at some point, the Minister of Health came in at some point, and you know, uh, Rotary, the, the program got you know like broadened. So any yes. country I get into, I had to go to the World Health Office, I had to go to UNICEF, I had to go to the Ministry of Health, I need to go to the field with the Polio Plus volunteers. They get paid some stipend. Those kind of those stipend they get paid comes from contribution of material like myself and yourself. Yes. Also, 
the World Health Organization country chair in Kodubo actually confirmed to me, he told us, how important the partnership between World Health and World Health, that all the staff they had on the polio plus desk unit in World Health is being paid for. Their salaries are being paid for by World So you can begin to see a lot of all those things we are doing. Yes, I know there are big problems here and there with what needs to happen in the country. But let's focus on those ones we can take. And if we look at the electricity case in Nigeria, if you ask me, it's sad. Because I went, like you, I passed to countries that had nothing close compared to what Nigeria has. And their power didn't blink when I was there. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's a sad thing. It's a sad thing. But at the same time, again, it comes for people like you and I. We need to ask ourselves, government cannot solve the problem. It's a business opportunity for people like me and you to come and invest in that sector. Yes. And see how we can, you know, because it is the public sector that develops a country. It's not the government. Yes, government can build infrastructure. If you look at Elon Musk, that is transforming the whole of the... Even the car, I mean the automobile, the company, Tesla, electric and car, yeah, and the space. It's not the government, U.S. government employee, but he's yeah. working on some of this infrastructure that's used yes. by the U.S. government. So it's a challenge to people like us, people like me, like you. That yeah, it's a business opportunity we can come invest in, and for me, it's something seriously I'm looking into in Nigeria. So yeah, those challenges are there. But yeah, people are still surviving under very difficult condition, under very difficult condition, I must say that, because I'm home now talking to you. My generator has been on for the last three hours. And that's what I wanted to <laughs> tell you. That, I know. So you're laughing on that, but many people, many people cannot, you know, cannot afford to be able yeah. to to right, fund so their generator that long. Mm -hmm. So that's a big start. And then, you know, of course, the, the, the prices of, of, of petrol has went up, you know, all yeah. over the world, even here. So I don't, I don't want us to overlook those major challenges. So your dedication, despite all of those challenges, are very empowering. And I like mm -hmm. that you said, okay, change start with us. All of us are change right. agents. We are blessed to use our time, our talent, and treasure to be able to use the, the gifts that God has given us, whichever sector you work in, to make a difference. However, I know you talked about the, the, the private sector and their influence. However, you know, also working at the government side, I see two points. Both public and private sector have a very key, um, a, a very key role Whoa. to play. And you can't have one without the other. So I'll, I'll give you a good example. Um, Nigerian elections is coming up next year. We in the diaspora contribute over $30 billion to the fiscal year budget. That's, that's the money that we send overseas to our people. But we do not have diaspora voting. We've been trying, and I've been one of the people through the Nigerian diaspora organization, um, had an online petition. I know we have a NIDCOM agency back in Nigeria. You know, they've been advocating to some leaders. When they represented the bill, so I tell people, if we don't have a government that creates that enabling environment for you to invest, for diasporas to come and say, okay, you know, I'm an engineer. I can bring in my company, my team, you know, that is registered in Nigeria, that's registered in the U.S., and I can bring in Nigerian Americans to come and fix the problem. However, if there's no policies in place that, that are going to protect you, that's going to easily help you, you know, 
register your company that's going to easily be able to help you, you know, fund, you know, across the entire value chain, then, you know, it's going to be very difficult. And if we, and, and, and it comes to, you know, being able to affect those policies, if we don't have a voting rights, it's very hard to say, okay, that I'm going to be able to affect those policies. And only 29 people, only 29 people in the House of Assembly voted. Yes, the remainder, you know, 80-something, you know, did not, did, voted against it. So they know the power that the diaspora has. And I really feel that this is the time where, you know, we have the Nehemiahs, we have the people like you that have come and said, you know, let me, let me take this bold chance. You could have been very comfortable and stayed in London, you know, and say, okay, I don't have to do this. But you said, look, I'm very passionate about this. Um, and as I told you, you know, I... Today's interview... Dr. Tommy. Thank you. Thank you, Daisy. So I wanted you to talk more about, um, you know, the current challenges of people that already have polio. So I know that, you know, you talked um, earlier about prevention of polio and the vaccine being free and, you know, and the immunization campaigns that are easily accessible, um, available. And of course, it's affordable because it's free. But they are people that already have polio that are crippled how can we help them i know um some of the solutions and innovations they have like electric powered you know battery powered solar powered wheelchairs but what type of innovations and solutions can we give and hope to people that already have polio over to you okay uh, thank you um actually you the question is quite valid you know because we tend to do a lot and focus so much on prevention of polio, which is good, but uh -huh. with very little focus on people who already have polio. You know, and these people go through a lot of challenge because you see people still crawling on the streets. Yeah, yeah. But there are things that can be done for them. The electric wheelchair is there. All right? You know, this wheelchair... Not so expensive, I think cost maybe about $800 or so. I've seen a couple of them. And these are actually, no, there are other ones which are manual, but uh, you know, like if you really want to help somebody, help somebody well, yes. you know. So some of these electric wheelchairs can be donated to people with, who are already suffering from the virus. And you know, that will actually, you know, if you look at our way of life, how we are as human beings, we have our mind and we have the body. The mind, the body is the vehicle that carries the mind about. Your mind can see what you want to do. Then the vehicle, which is your body, moves you about to implement those things, to help you implement those things your mind conceives. So when the body is limited, that is one way polio limits people. Even when they think, they can't really move about to implement those yep, things. Yep, yep. Those action into, put those thoughts into action. Now, if you give somebody an electric wheelchair, you know, to some extent, you have improved his mobility from the state mm -hmm. where he was crawling. Yes. Uh -huh. So it's a way of actually moving them towards, you know, living a bit a better, well, there's nothing like a better human being, but living a better life because human being is uh -huh. human. Uh -huh. So giving them an electric wheelchair is a way of empowering them to further be able to unlock their life potentials. So it's a key thing that can be done. It's an open avenue, open opportunity for service where people can donate into, people can 
coming to support this initiative and touch the lives of people. And I bet you, when you give somebody a wheelchair, somebody who was crawling on the streets, a wheelchair, and cannot move by himself, and do some of the basic things by himself, you've taken him out of, you put some dignity in him, in how he has been, and also empower him to be, you know, like a dignifying life. So that is a good call to action also for the people of diaspora and everybody listening to touch lives of people here. Yes. And if people want it, so that brings me to my next question, you know, finances. As you said, you use some of your personal finances. Rotary, of course, has donated people as members, you know, donated a hundred dollars each, which we have thousands of members, um, very active members in, in Nigeria and all over the world. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, you know, their financial grants and contribution. But here in the diaspora, how can people, so can you walk us through, like if somebody wanted to reach you or reach your Rotary Club, you know, you said that or you also have, right, or make a donation, you know, what is the process? Um, especially, you know, I, I call like for, you know, our Nigerian diaspora organizations. There's so many. There's like Nigerian Teachers Association. There's Nigerian Nurses Association, Doctors Association. You know, I'm part of Nigerian diaspora organization, South Savannah. So how can we even get some of those diaspora organizations to pledge and say, okay, we're going to pledge, you know, to be able to raise funds for, let's say, two, three electric chairs. You said they cost about $800 each. And if this is, you know, 100 organizations that, that, that pledge that, you know, times three, that's 3,000 already, you know, 300, 3,000, you know, it, it can get to millions of people that are affected, not just with polio that have been crippled by polio, but by, you know, crippled by other preventable, you know, diseases and illnesses. There's so many, you know, things that people are affected by, but just starting with polio alone, how can people able to reach you or reach Rotary Clubs um, in Lagos that you're a part of and your organization and how can people also donate? Over to you, sir. Okay, thank you. Um, that's the beauty of Rotary. You know, it's a global organization. And um, we have a website. My particular club, Rotary Club of Ecoe Metro. Rotary Club of Ecoe Metro. Metro. So once you put it on Google, it's going to bring out the club name and the details are there. And I tell you, Rotary encourages, okay, for Rotary and Rotary Club to actually partner with individuals like you, corporate organization, or other NGOs, like the Linkway. So to partner together and jointly execute a project. You know, just like you said, if you have, you know, contact with like maybe... 100 people who can give us 100 uh, wheelchairs. At Rotary, we can use our own resources, you know, our connection, to identify people who are going to benefit from this. And we can marry the two together. That is how, you know, we partner in delivering our projects. So we are very open. Rotary Club is very open. We are eager, we are willing, and we are expecting <laughs> that there will be a relationship here how we can actually work together to touch lives of the less privileged and how we can make life beautiful for some people around us. Yes. So it is open. Please remember Rotary Club of Ikoyi Metro. Ikoyi Metro, yes. Rotary Club of Ikoyi so, Metro and Linkway Diplomats will definitely <laughs> be in, in partnership 
And, you know, of course, we'll be in more discussion. This is just the start of a greater relationship. Over to you, David. Just a quick question. So on your website, there's a, a link to click and make a donation. Is that what you're saying? Yes, on the, okay. the club account is there where you can make a donation. And okay. uh, we're going to be putting in um, a GoFundMe link there too, where you can okay. also make a donation on both platform. Okay. Yes. And for those in the diaspora, um, you can go to directly to the Rotary um, the Rotary Club page in Ecoe Metro. But we also have our Linkway, www.linkwaydiplomats um, um, website which is www.linkwaydiplomats.org, which we can also, you know, accept donations and, and be able to partner and send over those donations um, to the Rotary Club that you are a member of. And we're also on PayPal here. So just having multiple ways, you know, you know there's no excuse. We have PayPal, we have Cash App. Um, if you see at the link, you know, you search for Linkway Diplomats, even on Zelle. Linkway diplomats, and we're able to track and say, okay, this is our contribution here in the diaspora to the Rotary Club partnership in Ecoe Metro. That Linkway diplomats, where we were able to raise this amount of funds. So once again, um, we're, we have multiple ways where you can donate, and we thank our audience members in advance for donating to this important cause. Um, because once again, as Mr. Kunle Adeyanju said, it takes the power of partnership. All of us mm -hmm. can make a difference and all of us are change agents. And, you know, one dollar <laughs> goes a long way. I believe the exchange right now in Nigeria, one dollar is about 600 and something naira. It's right. extreme. It's, it, it, it can make a huge impact. So thank you so much for that. I know that, you know, this has been a wonderful show. This is going to be we one of many shows. We definitely want to have you back. Again, as I said, when you launch, you finish um, your book and you launch your book and hopefully a documentary movie soon. But I wanted you to conclude on um, what are your last words um, to our audience members here in the diaspora and back at home. Over to you, sir. Okay, thank you. Um, to the viewers in the diaspora world, my plea to you is Africa needs you. Africa needs your talents. Africa needs your skills. Africa needs your gifts. I'm not talking about your gifts in terms of resources, your money, no. I'm a believer of teaching somebody how to fish rather than giving fish. Yes, I help people a lot with giving them money, but it's just that I believe in empowering people so that people can actually earn a decent living for themselves. There are opportunities to operate with Rotary Clubs. There are opportunities to partner with a lot of other organizations. But Rotary is there at the forefront. Please come join us. Let's transfer those skills, those talents, those knowledge that you've acquired over the years and push it into the African economy. And that's where we can bring a lot of people out of the poverty line and be able to make them, you know, a decent citizens, any decent living for themselves. So once again, my call to action for you people, my family in the diaspora, diaspora world, Africa needs your talent, your skills, and there's opportunity where you can actually invest those in the life of people. Thank you. Thank you, uh, thank you Mr. Kule. So after you've conquered, um, you know, riding your bike from London to Lagos, was it Lagos to London? Either way, um, what is next? 
Well, for me, I want to finish the book. Once I finish the book, um, in the next two years, I see I'm going to be writing from Lagos to Israel, then from Israel to... Oh, to okay. <laughs> nice. So just passing through Israel, spending maybe like a week in Israel. And see the Holy Land. Yeah. Uh-huh. Spiritual experience. And um, I want to go to Tibet. And why Tibet is... Um, you know, that's the highest plane in the world. And everybody who's been to Tibet, who's written about Tibet, they will tell you God lives in Tibet. Oh, okay. They say God lives in Tibet because of the high level of purity you see about everything in Tibet. So I want to experience that purity. And when I do that, then I want to drop my bike and go climb Mount Everest. (laughs) Lots of dreams. Very nice. That yes. is that is great. Um, the Holy Land. That's also on my on my bucket list. But we also want you to come to the U.S. too. You've been when are you going to come visit us? Traveling, you know, from Lagos to London. When, when you go, go Lagos to L.A. or Lagos to ATL. Atlanta. Atlanta. Mm-hmm. I'm making a point of duty to come see Make you. Make a stop. Yes, instead of flying it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. Nigerians have enough private jet. You can you can get on their private jets and then once you land, ride in, you know, from the, from the border. No problem. We're with you. Oh, boy. But thank you. Thank you so much you for so much. this thank wonderful you. interview. Um, I can't you. wait to, to, to hear about your other next projects from, mm-hmm. from Lagos to Israel. Adventures. Um, you know, you talked briefly about, you know, your, the spiritual aspects and, and your faith, you know, and, and I know that, you know, God really kept you strong and protected throughout your journey from, from London to Lagos and will continue to protect you as you take on these ambitious projects of writing the book and, you know, documentary and going into Israel. So thank you so much once again, and we look forward to have you in the future. Thank you to all of our audience members tuning in virtually from all over the world on YouTube, everywhere. Thank you to my co-hosts, Miss Daisy, and all of um, the people in the background, Mr. Dan Emmott, you know, and, and our production crew. So thank you. God bless you. And God bless the Federal Republic of Nigeria. And of course, here in the United States of America. Amen. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you to the sponsor of my Wellness and Wahala podcast, Anchor. It's a great podcasting platform and also Nido Radio, Nigerians and Diaspora organization, Radio 24-7 online radio, which also plays my Wellness and Wahala podcast show. So I'll leave you today with the song of the week. It's from Ada Ehi and Limobile is a Christian song that says, okay, everything is going to be okay. Bless up.
love is more than okay. Tell my death to your love, it's all this for sure. Your love is more than okay. Oh, Tara, oh, Tara. If you ever see me, oh, Tara, oh, Tara, oh, Tara. If you ever see me, oh, Tara. Okay.